Hey folks, we are back with another panel episode of Radio vs. the Martians. I'm Mike Gillis. I'm Casey Doran. This is going to be a great one. We dive into that cultural juggernaut that there is no escape from, both fictionally and in real life. <laughs> We're talking about zombies. And as we had announced on episode 2.5... We were originally planning on having Paul Harnden on. That, unfortunately, is not something that was possible. He had a work obligation. Presumably works for Ebenezer Scrooge, sitting across a table with stacks of gold coins while he heats his hands over a single burning coal. (laughs) But we actually have a great panel, even in his absence. We were joined by Ian Gould, who was able to join us via Skype from Australia. Yes, which is further establishing super country Amor Australia. I think that's actually part of Oceania from 1984. (laughs) Ignorance is strength, folks. (laughs) So in this panel, we're going to dive quite a bit into the cultural relevance of zombies, some new takes that people have attempted to do with zombies, and of course, why these monsters should never, ever be romantic leads. All right, let's do it, Mike. These days, zombies are fucking everywhere. Now, shambling corpses eating people in the post-apocalypse is nothing new. Most people trace the common ancestry of zombie stories back to the movies of George A. Romero, who wrote and directed Night of the Living Dead in 1968 and its sequel, Dawn of the Dead, a decade later. But something's happened in the past five to ten years. Zombie popularity has exploded. Not only is The Walking Dead one of the biggest shows on television, but the trade paperback collections of the comic book that inspired it are so successful that they regularly outsell comics about characters like Batman and the Avengers. Zombies have become so ubiquitous that they're invading other mediums, too. In the past five years, we've seen countless video games like Left 4 Dead, Dead Rising, Dead Island, Plants vs. Zombies, Zombie U, and DayZ. Not only that, zombies have invaded non-horror games in zombie-themed downloadable content expansions. <laughs> Military shooters like Call of Duty and even westerns like Red Dead Redemptions have zombie modes. Where did this current zombie craze come from? So we're going to knock this some bitch down and eat its brains. <laughs> Joining us for this discussion is Ian Gold. He's the owner and proprietor of Ace Comics and Games in Brisbane, Australia. Welcome, Ian. Hello. And Libby Grant, colonist of SeattleVine.com and the author of Baptism for the Dead, which I promise is not a zombie novel. <laughs> not even remotely. Libby, welcome to Radio vs. the Martians. Thank you. I, can I just take one quick moment to point out that actually I write under a different name than Libby Grant because Libby Grant's a boring name. So actually my pen name is Libby Hawker and also L.M. Ironside, neither of which writes zombie fiction. Thank you very much. Is, is L.M. Ironside related to Michael Ironside? Possibly. That guy's awesome. (laughs) And finally, the Riker to my Picard, Casey Doran. How's it going, Mike, and everybody? Casey is actually joining us for the first time as a new dad. Oh, thank you. Thank you so very much. Let's get in on it. Why don't we? So your son, Elliot, was born mere hours after we recorded episode 2.5. That's true. So... Welcome back. <laughs> Thanks. You're, I'll try not to fumble my words too much. You were recording a nerdy podcast while your wife was in labor? Well, pre-labor, but yes. <laughs> okay. You have successfully spawned, so you are now expendable. Yeah. <laughs> so, Ian, I'm going to start with you. What is the appeal of zombies? 
let's face it, in fiction, zombies are a trope. Now, Warm Bodies is a zombie movie. You could say that 28 Days Later is a zombie movie. Night of the Living Dead is a zombie movie. Tokyo Zombie is obviously a zombie movie. Similarly, though, Blazing Saddles and Unforgiven are both westerns. So there's a whole range of different topics which come up in zombie movies. I'd also point out that Romero's movies, at least, are based on social criticism where zombies are, in effect, a metaphor for anything which is threatening your existence. Now, in the first of the Romero movies, it's essentially in large part about race relations, although that's incidental because the main character was originally supposed to be white and the inability of people to overcome those barriers and work together. In the second movie, it's about consumerism. The third movie is better not spoken about. The <laughs> fourth movie, Land of the Dead, is very much about social hierarchy. So you have the zombies outside the city, you have the working class in the city, then you have the elite in the tower within the city. And, of course, it all comes tumbling down when the zombies make it into the city and then attack the tower. The really interesting thing about Land of the Dead, as I would describe it to somebody who hasn't seen it, is practically a Marxist horror movie. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, you essentially have the working class in the middle and the very rich sort of keeping them happy with bread and circuses. Outside the city, you have the shambling dead outside. I know that in that movie, there's a character played by John Leguizamo, who is this working class guy who is trying to save his money, work really hard with the hopes of becoming one of those elite guys and getting a spot in one of these towers. And the catalyst for the zombies getting in is, of course, he's told by Dennis Hopper, who actually said that he designed his performance off of Donald Rumsfeld. He actually based his his performance off of Donald Rumsfeld. And Dennis Hopper, of course, is best known for his portrayal as King Koopa in the Super Mario Brothers movie. Indeed. Of course. His finest role. (laughs) It's really about him just straight out telling John Leguizamo, it doesn't matter how hard you work, you're not one of us. Okay, here's, I don't know, is the format of this podcast podcast such that I may jump in with my opinion anytime, or do I need to wait? No! No! (laughs) (laughs) Please do. Of course you can. Here's my question. I like to pretend that I am a writer, and I can appreciate a metaphor as much as the next guy, but my question is, why do we have to rely on the same goddamn metaphor for everything? Like, here we just listed zombies as a metaphor for race relations, consumerism, Marxism, God, I don't know what else, like everything you can imagine under the sun. We're just recycling zombies as the sort of endless catch-all trope. Why do we need them? Why do we need this zombie safety net in our media? Are we so freaked out by ideas like race relations and consumerism and anything else you can imagine that we might substitute zombies for that we can't just address those directly? Or at the very least, use a fresh metaphor? Well, zombies, at least they seem like they're kind of a recasting of a ghost or a ghoul or some something that you would have in a prehistorical mythology. But there's sort of that terror of having the other multiplied by thousands because of what happens in population centers. As we grow bigger, you're surrounded by people all the time. So it seems to me that it's just the same metaphor that you would have seen in any mythological story that has a supernatural entity a dead person maybe who's came back to life but in this one it happens to be more fleshy and then multiplied to the nth degree because that is the social terror in which most of us live again to use the the western analogy and i'll make another point after this blazing saddles little big man unforgiven race relations the plight of the american native which also comes down to race relations of course sexual politics vigilanteism why do we keep having to use Westerns? And the point is that for 
40-odd years, American fiction kept using westerns. At the same time, of course, they also kept using detective fiction, which also spread across a whole range of issues. The other point I'll make is that zombies are in many ways a limited metaphor. Fairly obviously, at the end of Land of the Dead, you have this idea that the working-class humans and the zombies are going to somehow coexist. Which is interesting, because what's the basis for compromise? Are they going to eat half our brains? (laughs) (laughs) I can definitely see the limits of the metaphor, obviously. I guess it's nothing new to use science fiction or fantasy or horror as allegory. And I think, why don't we direct these things head on? I think it's because maybe things are easier to talk about when you take those divisive issues head on out of the picture. Race relations, especially when Night of the Living Dead was made, it was made in 1968. These were hot-button issues. Race relations were also talked about in another 1968 movie, Planet of the Apes. Mm. But it's easier to talk about these issues when you take the names out of it. You take Bull Connor, and you take Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and you take these police chiefs blasting peaceful protesters with fire hoses. You take that off of the table, and you instead involve these people from a fictional world or creatures that don't really exist, and somehow make Maybe it becomes a doorway into talking about this topic in a way that's non-threatening and doesn't immediately shut down and make certain people very defensive. Yeah, I I get that. And I actually, I I think zombies are a very effective metaphor when used uh, within reason and, and sparingly and effectively. Well... That was redundant, but <laughs> but you know what I mean. I mean, I actually like the the first two George Romero movies. I think they're good. I think they use the metaphor very well, and it's very very potent in that kind of setting, especially Dawn of the Dead, which I actually like. I think it's a good movie. But my biggest problem with with this, like, oh, we're using zombies to explore X Y Z, is that no, no, you're not, not anymore. Like, it, it's gone beyond that point. Yeah. People aren't using zombies as a tactful metaphor anymore. It's just a freaking fad. You're right, and I think it, we really should trace the modern popularity of zombies, the resurgence. I'd say 28 days later. Am I wrong? I mean, I think that is really where it started to be picked up again as a topic in movies and then in pop culture in general, where it had been stagnant for a decade and a half. I would ask, did that come before or after the remake of Dawn of the Dead? I think the Dawn of the Dead remake came out short time afterwards. I think it was 2004, and if I remember correctly... Oh, it was 2001 or 2002, which is 28 Days Later. Yeah, 28 Days Later was 2002, and I think that 2004, if I'm remembering correctly, was the Dawn of the Dead remake. Okay. I don't think that the zombie surge in popularity had come into full swing yet. No, obviously it reached its head. Uh, I was actually doing Google Trend searches on this, and you could see the steady progression of the search term for zombie go up and peak in about 2011. And I don't know, I think that correlates strongly to around when Walking Dead, the TV show, got popular, and World War Z was around the same time. But also you get a sort of trailing sense of people's dread and ennui about the state of the world as it relates to revolutions and economic crises. And so I think that's why you're seeing it be embraced. But I think it's been building over a decade over or a little over more than a decade. Is there and I just want to throw this question out to all of you guys. Is this where zombie popularity comes from? Is it a reaction to a social zeitgeist? If you look at the 1970s where Dawn of the Dead was really big, is it a reaction to, I guess, what 
President Jimmy Carter then called sort of the malaise, the idea that there's this sense that society is stagnant in some way, that we would like to take the clock and set it to zero, that maybe this grand social experiment is something we'd like to see come crashing down, and that maybe we'd have a better go of things in the post-apocalypse? Is, is, it, a, is it a death wish for society? I have heard that proposed several times before from various different sources. My honest feeling about that is I don't think we've seen enough terrible economic crashes and society's sort of uh, media reaction to them to really know for sure. We're basically only using a sample of two here, the late 70s, early 80s, and now. And I don't really know. It's possible. (laughs) I don't know. My response to that would be that We just established that the current surge of zombie popularity actually started around 2000. Now, there was a mild recession in 2001, but 2004, admittedly, was after 9-11, so there's a lot of anxiety around that. Sure. But a lot of it comes down, it's very simple. The original Night of the Living Dead was a very good movie. The remake of Dawn of the Dead was a very good movie. 28 Days Later was a very good movie. And The Walking Dead was a good television show. It's quite possible that if you believe the rumor mill, World War Z is going to be a very bad movie and will tank. <laughs> is, it, is this like a Star Wars even-numbered uh, movie prediction thing here? Is that what this is? We're, we're seeing a pattern? Well, I think it's, it's Star just Trek. the way things happen. I mean, World War Z was fundamentally, as a book, a series of interviews with people, which is supposed to be this worldwide view of the zombie apocalypse, with no single major character. The movie is about Matt Damon saving the world. And apparently they had enormous problems with it. They had to junk the entire third act, reshoot it. It's way over budget. The advanced talk is negative. I don't think any of that is about zombies. However, when it comes out, if it does poorly, which is quite possible, you'll have people saying this is the end of the zombie craze until the next season of Walking Dead starts. It's a new rating <laughs> Right. Exactly. So this is maybe something that may be at the heart of it, which is the idea of zombies being, in fiction, something that's derivative. The idea that, like Libby's talking about, the limits of what you can do with this. And I don't necessarily think that taking the metaphor out of the zombie makes it bad. I don't think that straight-out escapist fiction is in itself a bad thing, that you need this, this no. deeper metaphor. No, not at all. No. Let's face it. Essentially, every zombie movie has in it the shopping scene, which is just the, the straight-out fantasy of going into a supermarket and basically looting, <laughs> taking whatever the hell you like. True. It's in 28 Days Later. It's basically the, virtually the entirety of the original Dawn of the Dead. Mm. Uh, it's the montage sequence in the remake of Dawn of the Dead. It's even in Land of the Dead, which is sent 20 years after the apocalypse. Society's gone now, and I'm actually going to have a fairer shake of things without this sort of society being there to prop it up. It reminds me a bit of every conversation that I've ever had with a self-described objectivist, (laughs) which is that they seem to all have this shared, I would say, delusion that if society were to be turned on its head that they would magically rise to the top of whatever came out of that. The idea that we're all misunderstood geniuses. Yeah. I was actually thinking about that analogy in the lead up to this. Yes, it's basically the Randian fantasy that we look after our friends and and immediate family, kill everybody else and take their stuff. The idea that I'm going to be Daryl Dixon in this new world, where realistically, I'm probably going to be more like Hurley from Lost. Oh, I know exactly (laughs) where I'd be. I actually recently, in a a job interview, I was asked, what is your plan for the zombie apocalypse? Which I'm sure you can imagine went over just great with me. But I gritted my teeth (laughs) and I said, (laughs) I said, 
well, I'm a realist, so in the event of a zombie apocalypse, I'll be dead, either <laughs> either killed by zombies or by other people. And I got the job. Wow. <laughs> people think that they are going to be this post-apocalyptic Mad Max-style badass. Mm. I don't think that's going to happen with most of us. You might notice in these zombie movies, 90% of people are shambling around as the undead, or they're that mess on the ground. Exactly. Yes. The Daryl Dixons of the world, the idea that I was considered trash before, but I'm going to show them now, and my ability to club somebody in the head with a bludgeon is going to be my salvation. I find that so funny because... It kind of gets to that same idea of let's just junk the social contract. Let's let's throw this all out. Working class white southern males obviously don't have it anywhere near as bad in the United States as many other social groups, but they are pretty much despised by a lot of people. They're looked down upon. They're almost always negatively stereotyped in the media when they appear, which is very infrequently. And admittedly, yes, there's other shows which cater to that demographic specifically, but in the mainstream media, they generally look down upon. One of the points with Walking Dead is that they don't sort of flinch from the fact that Merle in particular is racist, but they don't go before go on to say, therefore these guys are evil. It is actually a relatively complex, sympathetic portrayal of two guys who have serious flaws but are basically human beings, as opposed to zombies. I think that obviously speaks to the fact that Walking Dead is a very good story and it's a very good television show for that reason. And I give it credit, Ian, in the same way that you do, and that uh, it portrays a part of the country that is normally not portrayed in media and doesn't do it with the stereotypical overtones you would normally expect. I think I have a theory, and we're sort of building the foundations for this theory right now, for why zombie fiction is so popular. I, I want to know if I'm off base on this. I guess you could say the biggest part of zombie fandom that I've seen are these elaborate defensive strategies that people come up with in the event that something that's never going to happen happens. The fact that it's coming up in your job interview. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. How do you make a barrier for your living area? How do you get food? How do you arm yourself? Where do you hole up? Are you in a mall? Are you in a Costco? How do you stop looters from coming after you? Now, people don't do this in other genre fiction that, for instance, we might have a fantasy about being Batman or being James Bond. We don't design our own Batcave. No, we don't start digging the digging the Batcave out or saying, <laughs> this is how I would protect my secret identity. This is what I'd put in my utility belt. Maybe you don't. <laughs> <laughs> Can I make a, a public service announcement here for anyone who lives in Brisbane? In the event of a zombie apocalypse, do not head for Bogger Road jail (laughs) and i'll tell you why now it's in a nice central location it's defensible it's no longer used as a jail so you can get in there you can close the gate behind you the reason you shouldn't head there is i know for a fact that there are at least three or four other groups of people who have the exact same plan (laughs) and the place is going to be hopelessly overcrowded the first people who get in there will probably lock the doors everyone else and then realize that there is no food in there and starve to death. <laughs> Plus, it's just going to become barter town immediately. Yeah. That's what I mean, is that there are such elaborate plans that everyone has played at this some point, that when you watch the original Dawn of the Dead, and you watch them go through these elaborate plans of, okay, we're going to block off the mall, then we're going to clean out the mall, then we're going to make it livable, we're going to give ourselves an escape hatch, we're going to have this living area that, in the event that somebody breaks in, they won't find us, and we can hide it and wait it out. It's, it's so elaborate that you can't help but start thinking about that yourself. And I think I know why. Yeah, you might live vicariously through characters, like I said, Batman, Indiana Jones, James Bond. But their life is so unlike your own. 
hmm. that it's not something that you find even realistic. I am not going to live in Wayne Manor. I am not going to have Batman's resources to build a supercar with my face on it. <laughs> I am not going to even be able to afford a grappling hook gun. I am not going to be James Bond. I am not going to travel around the world with my jetpack and having women hang off my arms, beating spies who have lasers in their glass eye at Baccarat. <laughs> I am not going to be Indiana Jones. I'm not going to punch Nazis. I'm not going to swing across on a whip and kick in the walls of some ancient castle and, and go for a search for the Holy Grail. That's not my life. My life looks nothing like that. I've never even punched a Nazi once. <laughs> <laughs> I did once. It was pretty cool. Not that I haven't thought about it. So I, I look at this and I say, you know, with the zombie story, it's a little bit different. These are not people with extraordinary lives. These are people that have lives that are obviously much like yours. It's hard to say I'm Bruce Wayne, I'm James Bond. It's not hard to say I'm Maggie or I'm Glenn from The Walking Dead. Mm. That these are regular people that have a world that they move around with that looks like yours. It's just fallen apart. And they're surrounded by their neighbors. And you can easily say, oh, my neighbor from across the street, he's staggering towards me. I've got a shovel. What do you do? <laughs> and you have an excuse to kill your neighbor. Exactly. And that's the big problem I, I have with the weird surge of, of zombie popularity, too. Because, like, we have other fictional situations like The Road by Cormac McCarthy where sure. the world has fallen apart and here are all these everyday humans trying to survive in it and sometimes killing each other because they have to in order to survive you know we have these other scenarios but they're not nearly as wildly popular as anything that has zombies in it and I think the reason why zombies have had this surge of popularity recently is because of the implicit violence in it it's sure. okay to kill people you know because now they're not really people yeah. and honestly Honestly, that just makes me really uncomfortable. Right. At the beginning of Dawn of the Dead, Mike and I were talking about this. At the beginning of Dawn of the Dead, the two main characters whose names are now fleeting me. Roger and Peter. Roger and Peter. They're in a like a SWAT team and they're trying to clear out buildings in Philadelphia, I think it is, because they're evacuating the city and there are people that are in these high-rise subsidized tenements who won't leave. And there's this asshole racist cop who's just using this opportunity to go and blow away all of the black and the brown people who are there simply because he's like, we might as well. And eventually Eventually, his crew has to take him down. And this happens like within the first five minutes of this movie. sets an incredibly dark tone, but it answers to that same thing, which is, in this sense, people who have physical power with a gun will just go and kill anyone they want to. And that'll be the only excuse that they need. Oh, we're killing people now? Kill those people, too. I totally hear what you're saying there, but but I think the the extreme popularity recently of anything with zombies in it is sort of indicative of this weird current that's kind of running in our society of where maybe we all just kind of desire to be able to do that. Yeah. Like, oh, hey, Walking Dead, not maybe so popular because I'm just like Maggie or I'm just like, you know, whoever in, in Walking Dead, but so popular because, look, here are these people who are just like me and they can kill anybody. It's it's just disturbing to me. It's, it's what Christopher Hitchens called the uh, uh, visions of the apocalypse, a puerile fantasy. And that's yeah. really what it is. And so, yeah, we should be critical of it on, on that level because it is a puerile fantasy and it's deserving of the same type of scorn that you would give any objectivist. Ian, you're a big zombie fan. Is that what it is? Do we want to kill our neighbors? Well, yes. And let's remember, this is horror fiction. <laughs> and let's face it, uh, <laughs> vampire fiction is about rape. That doesn't mean that if you watch it, you can go and rape. And mm. to return to a point I made earlier, we mentioned Nazis. Put someone in a Nazi uniform, and again, it's entirely justifiable to kill them. Ma'am. Now, I have <laughs> but a very zombie good Nazis. Ha ha! <laughs> <laughs> Double point. 
Yes. <laughs> I have a very good friend whose father was in the Wehrmacht during World War Two. He spent his entire time in the Arctic, in Norway, looking through glasses in a futile attempt to find Allied subs. That was it. He didn't hurt anybody. He was conscripted into the army. If he hadn't gone, he would have been sent to a concentration camp. And in fact, he nearly went there anyway because he was one of the jazz kids, swing kids. Wow. The point is that in many ways, that's more horrible than killing people who are insane because of the disease. That's still horrific, but it's not necessarily as bad as saying you can kill an entire group of people because of their ethnicity, because, you know, they are now Nazis, or for that matter, because they're Indians, to return to the Western analogy. And we found that acceptable for generations. Yeah, we counted that acceptable for generations, but it's not anymore. Nope. And, you know, our society is evolving, and it should. And I, I wonder if it's evolving in the right direction when this zombie stuff is so popular, where a big part of the fantasy is, oh, you can kill anybody. And I totally get the point. I think the point you made about horror fiction being fiction, and, and yes, in many ways, vampire fiction is about rape or about extreme sexual desire. It doesn't mean you want to do that. I totally hear you on that. But vampires haven't spilled over into other aspects of our culture in the same way that zombies have over the last few years. It's kind of weird. Wait, didn't you see Dracula dead and loving it with Leslie Nielsen? I don't think anyone saw Sadly, that. Sadly, I did not, but now I kind of want to. Continue. Sorry, go ahead. I wonder what it indicates about our culture that the zombie thing is such a big deal that we've got ammunition companies selling zombie rounds and other hmm. bizarre, like, it's, it's just, it's spreading everywhere, not unlike a zombie plague. From a filmmaker's point of view, what I'll say about zombie movies and all horror movies, because I find horror movies to be incredibly reprehensible, especially with the Eli Roth and Saw sort of torture porn type of film where it doesn't become about suspense that's been punctuated by violence. It's, in fact, just a celebration of brutality and torture and gruesome stuff. But in reality, from a filmmaker's point of view, a second to nudity, nudity is the cheapest special effect you can have on a a feature (laughs) film. Second to nudity, fake violence is the easiest special effect to do it. And at least the rise of horror movies as sort of indie or small budget movies with ambitious directors, there's a good reason why you see first time directors, Sam Raimi is one of these guys, especially doing horror movies first, because you can do some really interesting stuff with cheap, inexpensive special effects that are very creative. And then you move your hopefully you move yourself up and you end up doing other stuff outside of that. This is where I wonder if the connection to Saw is a fair one. Yes, in Saw, we're seeing sentient human beings be tortured horribly oh they have and to choose their own they have to choose their own torture the right? idea they're choosing That's, their torture which is even worse and you're watching them tormented not only physically but also emotionally right. and with zombies that the idea is that this is essentially an automaton and i guess the difference there and, and ian brought up a really good point about nazis that most of the people who were servants of the third reich are not joseph goebbels these are not right. people that were orchestrating the final solution these were not people who were gassing people at death camps these are mostly just people who happen to live in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. Yeah, and that these I agree. Are, they're still human beings. And again, Back the in Pakistan. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I, I look at the zombie scenario and say, you know, there actually are instances where we remember that these were humans. So I know Walking right. Dead had this moment with the character of Herschel. Yeah, his whole family, right? Yeah. The, the big reveal is that he has been not killing them. And in fact, that his reaction to seeing the main character survivors just casually bashing heads in with crowbars, it just horrifies him. 
And I think a lot of it comes from the fact that he is from a small town, that when zombies wander onto his farm and try to eat him, these aren't just random strangers. This isn't like central casting coming after him. <laughs> these are people, these are his neighbors. And he knows every single one of them who comes over the fence and tries to grab at him. So it makes sense that he would try to sort of preserve their lives. Yeah. I can't help but kind of think of this in writing terms. What a powerful device a character like Herschel is who can take this orgiastic violence thing that everyone's glorying in and really make you stop and think about what all these other characters are actually doing. And maybe they have to do it to survive in this world. Okay. But Herschel makes him stop and think. He does. He's He's got this emotional edge on this shambling hordes of zombies and we're all just going to cut their heads off with our chainsaw hands, you know? I mean, <laughs> but, but then in the end, always, inevitably, Herschel loses out and all of his zombie friends have to get killed. I was going to make a couple of points here. One is that Walking Dead is actually well written. For every Walking Dead, I'm sure there are a dozen Z-grade, really bad zombie movies which are just orgiastic celebrations of violence which we don't know about because we aren't wandering around the horrors shelves in Blockbuster or looking on torrents for uh, the latest zombie strippers. <laughs> that's, that's the first one I'd make. Well, maybe you, maybe you aren't looking for zombie strippers, but... <laughs> it's terrible. It is. It's terrible. There, there are at least three zombie stripper movies, and only one of them, which is Big Tit Zombie, which is the Japanese movie, is any good at all. Oh, Japan. <laughs> Japan, Japan always knows how to save a terrible premise. <laughs> yeah, although the Tokyo Zombie is, is surprisingly disappointing. Now, the next thing I will say with that is that with Herschel in the comic, there is a very interesting scene where, which I don't think translated into the TV show, where actually says to Rick, how do you know there's no cure? Right. How do you know they aren't going to start, wake up tomorrow morning and be normal again? You just are making this up as you go along. Now, we know the rules. George Romero has set out what zombies are like. Now, that's just a piece of fiction. There is a very interesting Australian zombie movie called Undead. In that, at the end, it turns out there is, in fact, a cure, which really horrifies one of the two main characters because it means that, again, they have just killed a bunch of their neighbours and friends when they could have probably just run away and they would have been cured. Mm. As the other person points out, yes, I think you're getting the bit where they were trying to eat our brains. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Herschel is a great character, and the more I think about it, Herschel's fantastic because he, I mean, he's also probably until the preacher comes along later in the graphic novels, he is the most religious man who's there. And so obviously, this is part of his worldview where he believes in redemption. So that is fueling part of it. And really, zombie worlds are worlds that are bereft of hope. There is rarely a future. Children or pregnant women being part of it are always a huge liability because there's that decision to make of whether or not it would be right to bring a child into a world where they'll likely die a violent death. And adding that as a flavor to the universe, that there is hope and some people couch that hope in a faith, is what you don't see a lot. You don't see that in George Romero movies either. When you look at zombie films, there is that unspoken assumption that what has happened to the world is irreversible. Mm -hmm. That, like you said, Ian, there is no cure. Why do we make that assumption that there's no way to save these people? And the one place that made this point that I found kind of shocking was an episode of South Park very early on in that series run. It was the, the pink eye pink episode. Eye, yeah. The pink eye episode. <laughs> pink eye. Where there is a zombie plague 
And their reaction, like in every zombie movie, is we're going to chainsaw them. We're going to bludgeon them with <laughs> shovels. And they end up calling the helpline for the Worcestershire sauce that kicked off this whole plague in the first place. And they call the helpline, and the helpline says, okay, so you've, you've created zombies. You're not chainsawing them, are you? And they're like, and in the background, the characters are just slaughtering zombies left and right. And they're like, uh, no. And they, they actually managed to administer a cure. And suddenly, boom, it changes, and that pile of zombie corpses turns into a pile of regular corpses. <laughs> yeah. And everyone just sort of cheers. And it's done in humor, but the point there is is remarkably serious, which is that I just killed a bunch of my neighbors, and I didn't have to. I did this for no good reason. It's one of the things that I think really sets World War Z apart as a piece of zombie fiction for most of them, which is the sense that we're looking at this from the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. That this is what I think, Ian, like you mentioned, why I think this movie is going to be a failure is because, again, it falls into that derivative, same old pit about this tiny little group of survivors looking at a worldwide problem from the worm's eye view, where World War Z was essentially a takeoff on, I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, a book by a Studs Terkel historian. Yeah. Uh, It was a take on a book called The Good War, which was a historical narrative view of World War II, where maybe on one hand, we look at the war in a chronological fashion. This guy's a bomber in Germany. This guy is uh, somebody who's just like sweeping for mines in France. And you go chronologically from these very, very intimate personal viewpoints at something that's huge. And you try to make sense of it that way from the point of view that this is already over. And you looked at World War Z, and it was the sense that this was a terrible time in human history, and it's done now. And we're picking up the pieces, and we don't know yet what the world is going to look like after this, Mm -hmm. but it's still over. Yeah, and I don't understand why they chose to make the film as just another typical tropey zombie movie when it seems to me the perfect idea of how to interpret that book into a film is staring you right in the face. A Ken Burns documentary. (laughs) Perfect. It's even worse than that because it appears to be as a smashing of genre between a zombie survival movie and a disaster movie, which are now two incredibly overplayed genres of film. You can see how it happens, though. It's kind of like they did the initial costing items. They said this is a 50 to $60 million movie, and it has no leading man. It has no sort of real plot. It has no narrative. Are we going to spend 50 to $60 million on that? They said no. They spend the extra 20 to $30 million to get Matt Damon. Then they go, this is an 80 to $90 million movie. Therefore, we can't take any chances, so let's pile in the special effects. Let's make the story as conventional as possible. They say, oh, no, that's not working anymore. It's not what we originally intended. So it's reshoot at the end of it, and it's add another $50 million to the budget. I hate that. There is this opportunity. And again, we get back to this question of zombies as a genre. And they have become a genre, not just a type of monster, but a type of fiction on its own, which is that they don't really have the way that a lot of other fiction does, a lot of foundational fiction to base itself off of. When you look at science fiction, You have people like Arthur C. Clarke, Ray Bradbury, Kurt Vonnegut, Robert Heinlein. You have all of these different writers, and they all pull off in these very different directions. So when you become a science fiction author, I want to do what they're doing. You have all these different places that you can pull inspiration from. Fantasy actually suffers a lot of the same problems, in my opinion, that zombies do, which is that, who's your forefather? Your forefather is Tolkien, with a little bit of Robert E. Howard thrown in. Yeah. Yes. And I look at zombies, and when every zombie movie in the current zeitgeist is pulling from one man, George Romero, it has a real potential to be incestuous. 
it's kind of a bummer, really. I mean, creatively, and this is another problem I have with the big zombie fad right now, is is that we have this opportunity, or we, you know, the people who are writing this zombie stuff have this opportunity to kind of take it and make it their own, and instead they're just treading back over the same ground over and over and over again, and it's just becoming this endless repeat of farm boy raised by his uh, aunt and uncle finds out he's the chosen one and goes on a quest with his friends to find a magical object. Seen it! <laughs> it's just, it's the same story over and over again, and I am so so sick of it. What I find so disappointing about World War Z is that you had somebody, Max Brooks, who did something different. Yeah, he did. And we had an opportunity. Like you said, I would get Ken Burns to do a nine-part HBO awesome. mockumentary. Yes. And Absolutely. it would it would it probably wouldn't make as much money as this big budget film, but it would be so popular. And here's the thing: you would remember it in ten years in a way that yeah. you're not going to remember this movie. Yeah. If I, I can, though, just, again, most genre fiction is terrible. <laughs> most fiction of every kind is terrible. <laughs> True. Sturgeon's War. 90% of everything is crap. But for example, I don't know if you guys have seen it yet, but there is a British short series. They're obviously planning a second season, but the first one was only three episodes. It's called In the Flesh. Mm-hmm. It takes place several years after the zombie apocalypse when they found a cure or a treatment which stabilizes the sufferers from partially deceased syndrome. And it's about the government deciding they can not afford to keep the camps open where they have all these people housed, and therefore transferring them to care in the community. Hmm. Meaning that they teach them to pass as human and then send them back to their towns. And it's about the small town that the main character is returning to, where, apart from anything else, you have the people of the human volunteer force, who were the big heroes of the zombie uprising. But that was years ago. Now there's like half a dozen of them left. The pubs don't give them free drinks anymore. The God bless the HBF signs in the windows are going down. The annual ceremony on the anniversary of the uprising to remember the, their, their dead friend gets like half a dozen people showing up. And they're the same half a dozen people who, on a Saturday night, are out with a walkie-talkie in the rain looking for zombies. And that's very different. Yeah, now that I would check out. That I want to see, because that's a fresh take on something that has just been run into the ground. It sounds a bit like this uh, Human Defense League group that you're talking about. Sounds a little bit like the racist, though they say they're not racist, (laughs) wink, wink, (laughs) British National Party. Or the Minutemen in the United States. Exactly. Mm. There's a lot of uh, new places that you can draw from. The idea that this is an other and we're protecting our society from being overrun by these others. Right. In that it's British, I tend to suspect they're actually inspired by the IRA and the UDF. Ah, good point, yes. I want to see new takes on this stuff. I don't know, has has anyone besides me seen the movie Fido? Yes. Uh, I think I have seen that one, yes. So, for uh, the listeners who may not know, Fido was like a 2005 movie that had Billy Connolly as the uh, the eponymous character, and it was a zombie movie that took place, I think it was supposed to take place in the 50s, or it was a world wherein the cars, the styles, and sort of the social norm of the 50s was still there. So it was kind of your leave it to beaver childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, it t- took place after the zombie apocalypse, and the, and the leftover vestiges of it was that there is a giant mega corporation that was also the government, I suppose, called Zomcom, and they were the ones responsible for security, cleaning up after the zombies. The twist is, is that instead of just disposing of the zombies, they can put an electronic collar on them, and they can be used as domestic servants. So in, interestingly, as in the same way that maybe the original Night of the Living Dead was a commentary about 
race relations and about different classes. This too, they make zombies actually a servile class in a 50s setting where there would have been black Americans being in that exact same position. So the 50s setting is clearly not coincidence. No, no, not at all. This is an interesting way of dealing with a post-zombie thing and also a recovered zombie society because you learn that Billy Connolly's character Fido has paternal emotions towards this little boy that's there. And so there's an idea that they're not actually fully dead and that you really just need to get to know them and they're not just a, a senseless horde. And the bad guys are really the ones who are the pretend to be the war heroes and who are trying to kill them all the time. They're They're the bad guys. And in fact, it's about understanding. So in a way, yeah, zombie movies can be done where they're not just about an eradication of the other. Although I wouldn't say this is done with a lot of nuance. It just is a very interesting setting for, for zombie. It's noteworthy that they're both comedies, but Warm Bodies and Shaun of the Dead, again, depict what happens after the apocalypse right? and return it to some sort of, not status quo, but sort of more positive outcome. Unless in the case of Shaun of the Dead, you're a zombie. <laughs> in which case you're, you're pushing trolleys around. True. The thing I found really funny about Shaun of the Dead, and I had to have this pointed out to me, was all of the zombies you see later in the movie are those people who are just kind of staggering around on the bus, pushing the shopping carts, just kind of walking down the street without a thought in their brain. They bring all of those people back as the undead later. One of the interesting things with Shaun of the Dead is that you have the night before the apocalypse where they're wandering around drunk, and obviously it's already begun, and they don't realize it. They think the guy staggering up the street towards them is another drunk. <laughs> He's obviously a zombie. And then in the morning, you also get the thing where Sean goes down to the shop, and the guy had stopped him the day before to ask for change. <laughs> so he grabs him as he goes past, <laughs> and Sean just assumes that he's looking for change again when, in fact, he's trying to eat him. Yeah. <laughs> a raggedy man reaching his arm out at him. Yeah. He thinks it's yes. just a homeless person. I've seen Shaun of the Dead. It's a, it's a funny movie. I liked it. I will admit, grudgingly, <laughs> that I enjoyed Shaun of the Dead, also Zombieland. Maybe aside from you, Ian, it sounds like there's almost unanimity between us three here about sort of being disappointed about how overplayed it is. And we haven't really touched all this that much. My feelings are almost diametrically opposed when it comes to video games with zombies. For whatever reason, it's an incredibly potent and fun source for a setting for gameplay. I know you agree, Mike. Again, the idea of being able to break societal rules are implicit in zombie games. I don't know why I love zombie video games in a way that I don't love the same format of game, like a first-person shooter. Like, I love Left 4 Dead. I love that game. I don't love Call of Duty. For some reason, that if I'm in the role of a soldier and I'm shooting at other human beings, and I'm going in a town that's wrecked because I wrecked it, like I'm in some Middle Eastern city and I'm shooting at some person, I don't get enjoyment out of that. I don't want to use military technology. It's not a fantasy that I find myself wanting to put myself into. But the idea of being able to run around a neighborhood that looks like one that I live in, and I just kind of get a cut loose in the same way you can cut loose in, say, a Grand Theft Auto video game, The World Without Consequence. Right. I can see the connection. Right. Apart from some earlier ones like Splatterhouse, as far as horror movie games, Resident Evil was one of the very first series that had sort of zombies as the antagonists or zombified creatures. And it almost created an entire genre, the survival horror genre, which is still an incredibly popular genre. So George Romero may be sort of a foundational filmmaker for film, but for the Oscar crowd, I don't think he has as much respect as Resident Evil probably has for the people who make video games. And so that tells you a little bit more about the people who write and make video games is what kind of things excite them. 
Money. <laughs> I really can't comment too intelligently on video games except to uh, say that recently my three-year-old niece, Agatha, had a Plants vs. Zombies-themed birthday party, and it wow. was actually pretty fun. It was the most fun I've ever had at a toddler's birthday party. So thank you, Agatha. <laughs> That's a great game, too. I mean, I definitely wanted to drill down on this because zombies, interestingly enough, they can sort of fill lots of different gameplay, like first-person shooter or a third-person shooter or even tower defense. I'm sorry, I stuck away for a second there because I don't play video games. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both, except I'm trapped well, in a room. Here, I'll, I'm going to take it back yes. around. I'm take it back around here. The last thing I wanted to mention on that front was there is a video game called The Walking Dead video game, and it actually, interestingly enough, it is a video game unlike what you would expect from an adaptation. It isn't. They didn't just sort of port the world of The Walking Dead into a place where you can murder a bunch of zombies. It's about relationships in the very same way that The Walking Dead is a lot about the community they try to make. And so it's more like an interactive story where you're going through and you're interacting with characters that are there trying to survive and what choices you make and how you interact are how you progress through the game itself. And that also is something that is really almost untapped for video games. And it's exceptional. For me, that's what draws me into the zombie fiction genre. It's not the violence, though sometimes that can be fun and visceral in the same way that the violence in a movie like Django Unchained, that these are bad people and I want bad things to happen to them. But in this case, these aren't bad people. In many ways, they're victims of this thing that I'm afraid of happening to me, that it's not just the fact that I'm going to be killed by these things. But at the end, I'm not gonna, they're not going to be done with me after they're done killing me. I'm going to get back up and my body, in a sense, is going to be desecrated. I'm not just going to experience death, but my body's going to shamble around after I'm gone and maybe even terrorize my loved ones. I don't have control over my body, and it's in a weird sort of sense, kind of a rape. Hmm. No, I can totally get why zombies are scary. My sister is actually terrified of zombies. She will not, aside from throwing a Plants vs. Zombies birthday party for her three-year-old, she will not watch any zombie movies, will not read any zombie fiction. She just totally stays away from it. And, and I think that's kind of why, is that idea. It's just really a creepy, scary premise. But I hear a lot from people, you guys kind of touched on the survival and community building thing. I hear from a lot of people all the time who are constantly like trying to convince me to get into Walking Dead and everything like, oh, it's not about killing the zombies. It's about how these people survive. But we have all this other survivalist fiction out there. And again, I could point to The Road by Cormac McCarthy which is a different scenario from zombies, and yet it's not nearly as popular. He does a lot of the same things that many characters in zombie situations do. He has to make the same choices, etc. He's trying to survive. He's trying to help his son survive. But we never really know what he's trying to survive, other than some disaster happened. And yet it's just not as big a deal. So I don't think the draw is this survival community building thing. I think the draw for most people is killing other people. I can see that. And again, I can't like or dislike something based on what other people think of it. Yeah, I hear um, you. Because that is my draw. And the same reason I really enjoyed The Road by Cormac McCarthy is that these questions <laughs> of I am trying to retain my humanity in a world where humanity is now a detriment to my survival. And I have a young son here. And this is the same question with Rick and Carl in The Walking Dead. I have this person that I am responsible for protecting, but also turning this person into an adult who isn't going to be a psychopath. Yeah. 
I just also I need to say I really like the way we have all just sort of unanimously decided to refer to it as the road yeah. by Cormac McCarthy. I was thinking the same it's thing like, too. It's, it's like Precious, uh, yeah, based on based Push, based on the novel Push by, by Sapphire. Sapphire. <laughs> <laughs> so great. But I, I think for me, it, the the thing is not the violence. For me, it is the Jane Goodall experience hmm. that I am curious about people. And I want to know what happens when the safety lock is taken off of people. Huh. That we are no longer in the society that has a social contract. We're no longer in the society where I can call the cops if somebody does something bad to me. And this can be arbitrated in a peaceful, orderly way. It means if somebody robs me and takes all of my food, I have to go kill them and take it back. And that's a terrifying thing, the idea of a normal person being asked to make that decision and also raising kids in that environment. Because you look at the character of Carl through the course of The Walking Dead and you see somebody who probably has very little memory of his life prior to society crumbling and thinking that when he's an adult, the lion's share of his experiences in life are going to be in the post-apocalyptic world where decisions are made on, I think we need to kill that group of people for our own sakes. Decisions he would have never made before where you look at characters like Rick and Herschel and Andrea and Glenn, people who spent most of their life in a normal world and that world is still stamped all over them, that they still see things like, I want to make some kind of compromise, but I don't have a choice where somebody like Carl is probably going to go right off the bat into let's turn into marauders Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that question the idea of how do we retain our humanity in a world where it can actually get us killed is something that i think is at the heart of zombie fiction but post-apocalyptic fiction in general Mm -hmm. i mean that's the question in night of the living dead i mean yeah it has a lot of the generational divide but when you get down to the argument between ben and i forget the name of the the older family man it was really about do we put ourselves at risk and make ourselves vulnerable to attack, but also make ourselves in a better position to help other people who we could be. The idea of, I'm going to be compassionate and understand that I might have an opportunity to save somebody else. Or am I going to take that Randian ideal that you mentioned before, Ian? Am I going to protect my loved ones, my family, myself, and fuck all of those people? But Ben ultimately proves to be wrong. They saved no one. And if they had listened to the other guy, they would all have survived. The pr- real problem there is that he was a dick. I mean, everything he says is correct. It's the way he says it. I find people being a dick is at the root of most problems. (laughs) Yeah. As soon as we're talking about post-apocalyptic fiction, the other genre, which is not as big as zombies at the moment, is the post-apocalyptic alien invasion. And we've got Falling Skies, we've got Defiance, there's a bunch of movies, and again, these are set in the world after the alien invasion. Now, with aliens, many of the same issues arise. One of the interesting things is that in Falling Skies, they have this thing where, I don't know if you people have seen it. I have not seen Falling Skies, but that's okay, go for it. For the first half of the season, they set up the aliens, I believe they call them the skitters, placing what they call harnesses on people, especially human children, which basically take them over and turn them into the equivalent of automatons. And they're killing them happily and gleefully and with no problems at all. Then halfway through the season, they dissect the skitter and they find a harness. Oh. They realize that the skitters are themselves victims of their controllers. And they find, for example, they sneak into somewhere where the skitters are held up, and they find a skitter hugging human children as they sleep. And you eventually realize that there is another race which is controlling the skitters. Interesting. Uh, in a lot of ways, that's kind of similar to um, the big twist at the end of Ender's Game. 
Where, oh yeah, where you kind of come to discover that this this alien menace that has sort of terrorized planet Earth for you know however many couple of generations, and then everyone has grown to live in fear of. At the end, you find out that they just didn't realize we were sentient, and they're sentient creatures themselves, and they just thought they were just like you know like plowing an empty lot, <laughs> like not harming anybody. Speaking of another great book, they should never make into a movie, but are. <laughs> I look at these sort of twist endings where you realize, and sometimes in the case of zombies, you realize the humanity of something that you were fully willing to just put off as an object that's moving towards you, that a zombie is no different than a robot, or this thing that was brought here to kill you and has been trying to kill you is in itself a victim. Uh, that zombies, yes. the people that shuffle towards you, those were your neighbors. And that moment in the movie where you have the survivor who's bitten and is trying to hide it, they're going through that experience that every single person whose head you cave in with a ball-peen hammer was somebody who at one point was terrified. Yeah, I mean, it is also unique from having a robot or an alien or a, some other other as an antagonist is that you lose your... This is Rick Grimes in, in Walking Dead also. You lose your humanity by every skull you break and every zombie you cut up is that some small part of you dies because there's still some small part of humanity that was left in that person now that they're undead and that in a way is i think unique for zombies across that entire spectrum of horror other and if you have that irrevocable status quo that this is the way the world is the world is broken it will never be fixed then it's easy to make those small incremental decisions to cave in skulls because again like the australian horror movie you mentioned ian there's never this point where you just say oh my god this can be fixed i can save my neighbor if i just hole up in here with enough food eventually this will right itself it's sort of that point where you just go this is broken i can't fix it so you know fuck the rules the broken, unfixable society and what would you do in that scenario is such an interesting question that, that fiction, particularly like science fiction and horror, has so much space to explore in so many interesting and useful ways, in ways that can be, you know, like genuinely shaping in a, of our society and, and can make us better people with a greater understanding of ourselves. And yet everyone just keeps recycling the same material with very few exceptions. And it's just, it's annoying. Like, God, come up with some other metaphor to use you know how about some more alien movies where where we explore a similar theme this is just getting old it's old so i think that's a really good point here to jump on to something that i had asked you about earlier libby i'm a big fan of thought experiments especially when someone i know like you is a writer okay as that i think that we want to see clearly a new exploration of zombies we want to see this looked at it from a different way we don't just want to see a small group of neighbors protecting themselves against looters and and the undead we don't want to see this over and over and over in a world that can't be fixed i want to say let's just pretend that you have been tasked to write zombie fiction of some kind (laughs) try to try to keep your lunch in (laughs) i'm trying and what would you do differently because i know there's people who hate fantasy there's people who hate sci-fi i want to know what it is that they hate about it and if they had to write something good using those conventions how would you do it differently well i mean my my knee-jerk reaction to that question is to say i wouldn't you know like i wouldn't take the job because my my immediate gut reaction is to feel that this ground has been trodden so many times by the same stupid feet that it's just flat and compacted and barren and nothing i sow there will ever take root and it will just be beating my head against a wall to try it but <laughs> but since you asked i think what i would actually do would be to write fiction involving sort of the original zombie story which is the the uh, uh voodoo haitian uh, origins of it where it supposedly or 
depending on who you ask, if you read The Serpent and the Rainbow, actually um, is something where you can control a real person who is still alive, where you can basically make them your mind slave. The witch doctor henchman. Yeah, like like through psychotropic drugs, basically, you can turn someone into sort of a thoughtless slave to do your own bidding. I think it would be interesting to see um, a real exploration of quote-unquote real zombies, where it's maybe like a thriller-type story where somebody has to figure out who's doing this, why are, what are they doing it for, why are they targeting the people they, they have chosen to target, how are they accomplishing it, and how do you save these people who have been turned into mind less thought slaves and kind of restore them to their normal selves. So basically a zombie story that does not involve an apocalypse, that does not involve people struggling to rebuild and retain their own humanity because as useful as I think that metaphor is, I think I've seen it 500,000 times and I'm sick of it and I want to move on. So I would go with uh, like a contemporary thriller set in Haiti. Because Haiti doesn't look post-apocalyptic at all right now. (laughs) Uh I actually want to answer that. I want to answer that if you'll allow me, Mike. At the very end of I Am Legend, which they're not strictly the creatures in, in uh, Omega Man and I Am Legend and that whole series, that whole derived series, they are supposed to be vampires, I suppose, but they really behave more like more like zombies or a cross you can, between. You the can two really of them. make the argument that I Am Legend, the original book by Robert Matheson, is the place where zombie fiction was yeah, born. Yeah, they're, they're like they're like plague pyres, right? Yeah, Romero has said that that's where he got a lot of his inspiration for Dawn of the Dead. So I've seen Omega Man. I haven't seen the original with Vincent Price. I haven't seen the first one, which is, what is that called? That's The Last Man on Earth. Last Man on Earth. I Am Legend. There is an alternate ending. So Will Smith plays a virologist who's trying to do the cure. And there's an alternate ending where he's captured a female of the whatever. I can't remember what they're called. He's captured a female and he's starting to be able to cure it. Like he's bringing its heart rate down and starting to cure it. And he's on the other side of this plexiglass from these other beasts that are coming in to stop him from doing what she's doing. And in the alternate ending, you... He realizes through the reaction of this creature looking through the glass at what he's doing to this woman, he realizes that they're actually husband and wife in whatever permutation is allowable in that. And I would love to see a story where that effectively starts just after that, where really the last human ends up dying and then there's some sort of proto post-human creature that's there so there's some already some society that will then grow back up again but its rules will be based on a totally different factor i don't know if you're familiar with this but that's actually the original novel that is the original novel which is an excellent novel but i just have to say brace yourself your wish has been horribly torturously granted in the form of an extremely extremely bad novel in my opinion and my opinion only called dearly departed it's quite miserable i'm not familiar with it you don't want to be familiar with it trust me (laughs) I'll bear that in mind. <laughs> it's kind of interesting that you came up with that thought experiment, Casey, is because that's where Matheson went. This is a guy going out during the daytime and killing monsters. He thinks that he's he's saving himself. He's holed up at night. They're screaming for his name. And some of them are people that he recognizes. One of them was the guy that used to pick him up for work every day. And he goes out at night and hammers a stake through their heart. And the thing that he realizes again, while he's been dehumanizing them, is that they see him as the boogeyman. That yeah. he's the guy that's going to come out at night and kill them in their sleep. Mm-hmm. That he's the he's the monster. He's the monster, and it, it's a wonderful book. If any, if you guys have never read it, it is kind of the proto zombie thing that I guess got this whole thing started. And it makes me a little bit sad actually that so much of contemporary zombie fiction has strayed so much from the original novel I Am Legend because it has that nice ending where he goes out and kind of revels in his heroism of killing all these awful monsters that used to be these people he knew, and then he realizes. Oh, I'm the monster. They live in terror of this guy. 
they're okay now. They, they, this change happened to them, but they've become this new society and they're pretty much happy as they are. And he's just going out persecuting them and murdering them and, and frightening them. And it's a, it's a nice twist. So, spoiler alert. <laughs> so, Ian, do you want to take a swing at this? How would you do zombies differently? I don't know that I would. I will admit that I have several ideas for zombie fiction, but they are essentially works of genre fiction, which could be regarded more or less as twists upon the basic premise. For example, I've considered doing a story set here in Australia, but on the basis that there are people who are essentially immune carriers, which was touched on in 28 weeks later. People who, if they get bitten, they don't turn into zombies, but who are carriers of the disease. People who then find themselves as briars in human society and also at the same time being useful as you know, people can go into zombie-infested areas without worrying about them being bitten and turning. So recover valuables, recover medicine, recover machinery, shut down nuclear reactors, and the people who get sent out. So they're basically in the process point where they are themselves despised, horrified, a downtrodden separate caste, but that society depends vitally upon them. Hmm. Which, again, point is that is not really a radical reworking of the zombie concept. I did toy with an idea, which is kind of, again, going back to the idea of patient zombies, where the basic idea would be that sometime around 1850, someone introduced zombie powder into the United States. So you ended up with it being used to pacify the slaves, and you end up with slavery never-ending. That's an interesting concept. Hmm. That's really interesting. I like these sort of historical fiction takes on zombies, that you inject zombies into a certain point in history and break it off into a completely different hypothetical timeline. I know, Ian, you may be familiar with this, but I know that Casey and Libby are not. There was a comic book miniseries that came out, I believe, was it Abnet who wrote this? The New Deadwardians? Yes. Which is one of my favorite new takes on zombie fiction that I've seen. Actually takes place during the Edwardian era of England. And the zombie plague breaks out, and there's this war that they call the Restless Plague, (laughs) because the English like to understate things. Restless Plague Syndrome? Okay. (laughs) And Ask your doctor. This is the main characters are people who fought in this war like 60-something years ago, and that they found that the way to make themselves immune to zombies was to make themselves into vampires. (laughs) And I've seen many people sort of describe it as Downton Abbey with zombies. Oh, God. And, of course, the euphemism for a vampire, because there was no mistake, that is the young. Oh, yes. So this is a story about the young and the restless. <laughs> oh. Well played, sir. Well played. Nice. It's a really, really fun I'm series. Sure it's deliberate. Yeah, I, I guarantee that it's deliberate, and that the writer is just giggling about it to this day. Yes, it's yes. a really yes. well done story because not only is it a bit of Downton Abbey, and it's a question of again class that only the very rich become vampires. Yeah, they're immune, yes. but over the course of time, they feel less and less. They have no sexual drives. They don't really need to eat. They don't really need to sleep. Oh, but that how boring! Without those sensations, their lives become sort of again, like you said, boring and empty <laughs> and flavorless. And in order to save a person from the working class who has been bitten, the main character bites her again, turns her into a too young. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, is not only he's just taken her life, turned her into a vampire. It's hmm. also a dreadful social faux pas because huh. she's not really one of us. Right. And they're stuck with her for eternity. Huh. 
Interesting. Very interesting. She's this working class girl that has a Cockney accent. And now suddenly, I bet you she'd be a pariah among her own people because she lives in the part of town where there aren't vampires. And there are people in the working class who they see a vampire. They're going to come after you with clubs in an alleyway. And it's it's a really fun murder mystery, but it takes the zombies as in a totally different direction. And I'd like to see more people experiment that way. It would be nice to see more people truly experimenting. One thing I think we can all agree is not really in the realm of experimentation, but speaking of zombies inserted into historical settings, can we talk for a moment about how evil Pride and Prejudice and Zombies is? Oh. It's truly one of the worst abominations ever to come out of the publishing industry. I stand behind that statement. Hmm. So I think that's a good moment <laughs> with uh, Gauntlet being thrown down like that. Damn, damn. Uh, let's get high point, low point. That This is the moment where we say, what is the top of the mountain? What is the bottom of the barrel when it comes to zombies? We're going to start in a very different way than we've done in our first two episodes because we have, with doing low point last, a real opportunity to end ourselves in a mode where we might want to drink ourselves to death, and I want to avoid that. <laughs> so we're going to start with the low point here, and this is where I'm sure Libby is going to wring her hands together with glee. Yeah. Not even disguised glee. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, if I had a mustache, I would be twirling it right now. But I'm going to start in a different different direction, Libby. You're going to have to sit on this Aww. a little bit longer. Ian, what is the low point of zombies? There's a movie called Children of the Living Dead. I have not seen this. I'll explain why I have not seen this and why I still believe it to be the low point of zombie fiction. The director has written an apology for having made it Ooh. and has vowed to never again make another movie. Wow. Whoa, wow. He has told anyone who has a DVD or videotape of it that if they mail it to him, he will pay them for it. <laughs> so he can oh destroy God. it. Now I have to see this. <laughs> it's not available. He has pretty much succeeded in wiping it from history. I should explain the background of it was just totally insane. The original Night of the Living Dead because it was a very low-budget production, which no one thought was going to make any money or go anywhere, they didn't properly resolve who owned the rights. A man called John Russo ended up owning the right to make sequels to the original movie, as did George Romero, and I think Rockney O'Bannon was the third, or I could be wrong about that. So you get the Return of the Living Dead movies, you get the Romero movies, and you get Children of the Living Dead. Now, the charm in part of the first Romero movie is it was made completely outside the Hollywood system by people in Pittsburgh, I believe, who were not filmmakers. They were people who primarily worked in things like industrial film and TV commercials. John Russo hired essentially people from the same talent pool, minus George Romero and Tom Savini. So, for example, the special effects makeup is made by someone who had never worked on a movie before. He was a theatrical makeup person. The cameraman had worked with Romero quite a lot on television movies. He had never used a 35mm camera. On top of this, the writer was John Russo's daughter, and at least in the director's version of events, she kept overriding his decisions, and apparently after the movie was supposedly finished, they went back and dubbed in new dialogue over about half the movie, including taking the ending and moving it to the beginning which makes very little sense. So, yeah, if you can see it, you probably want to just to see an example of the worst, most execrable movie ever made. Casey? I think the low point of zombies is right this instant. 
actually. Looking at the trailer for the movie Warm Bodies, after having watched the Red Letter Media review of it and several other things, I think when you've turned zombie into a Twilight teen romance type fantasy movie and put it out there under the same aegis and the same marketing, I think we've about reached as far down as it possibly can. And along the same lines, the Amazon Studios just brought out the pilot for their Zombieland TV movie. They took a legitimately entertaining Zombieland movie and they've now made it this horrendous product placement laden really poorly written and poorly executed derivative trash of television and i just don't think it can get any worse than it is now it's the most popular that it's ever been and thus it's the most worthless and derivative than it's ever been when, when you said this moment right now i thought you meant this podcast <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, just, and was, maybe this podcast and also i'm wondering <laughs> how is how is uh the tv series or whatever the web series of Zombieland going to deal with the question of twinkies now So Libby, that moment you've probably been waiting for for (sighs) over an hour now, where do zombies fall flat? I'm going to echo Ian's question a bit and ask you if I can have a double whammy because I really can't decide between these two points. I've thought about this a lot. Indulge yourself. (laughs) First, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies Mm. makes me want to jump through a plate glass window. It is terrible on several different levels ethically morally writing wise <laughs> absolutely horrid and i'm going to uh, harken back to that book i wrote with apologies to the author because i'm an author too i'm sorry but it was not for me uh dearly departed is absolutely one of the worst books i've ever read it was ridiculous on several levels and uh just also to go along with the whole uh, uh warm bodies bs thing um it is a romance novel between a non-zombie woman and a zombie man and just think about that for a moment aside from its amateurish <laughs> ridiculously bad writing it involves rotting corpse dick <laughs> that's the low point my friends right there <laughs> that reminds me of the futurama episode when fry falls in love with a mermaid and he wants to stay behind in the lost city of atlanta the sunken city of atlanta <laughs> until he realizes that he that having sex with her would be something weird and then he leaves just <laughs> right I, I believe i believe the quote is why can't you be the kind of mermaid with the fish parts on top and the girl parts on the bottom yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh so I guess when I'm looking at low point, I come back to something I've said like five times already, which is the derivative nature of it. That when you do something over and over and over again, if I Xerox a Xerox copy of a Xerox copy of a Xerox copy, it's going to lose a lot of what made the original good in the first place. And a lot of times, and I know that on my other podcast, Mike and Paul Save the Universe, Paul and I have talked about how a lot of times when something is groundbreaking, you get copies. And the copies will grab all of the superficial aspects of what made this popular in the Mm. first point and miss all of the real substantive things that made something different. And I fear that's what happened with zombies, that you had with George Romero's movies, these really subversive political films that found a way to humorously and disgustingly deal with social issues during a very volatile time of American history and did it in a really fun way. I can talk about the idea of consumerism, looking down in a skylight and seeing these zombies shuffle around an abandoned shopping mall with Muzak playing overhead. And in that one image, George Romero says everything he needs to say about what he thinks about the shopping mall experience. 
surrounding yourself with this artificial world where I don't have to look up and see that pesky sun. <laughs> and I have all this stuff around me, and it's shiny, and there's this artificial tinny music playing over the intercom. But instead of that, we just want to hear shovel enter skull, <laughs> you know, rinse, repeat. And it gets really old after a while. And I think that there's a lot of really bad zombie fiction that doesn't care about the human condition, that doesn't really care about how people can emotionally survive in this world, who don't care about the way you can make a point about something in modern society using this as a metaphor, but just want to see somebody's brain splatter all over a wall. And it gets really old. And I worry about the fandom in the sense that what if this is what the fandom wants? What if I'm the outlier? What if the fandom just wants a bunch of mindless, visceral bullshit, and I'm the only person, aside from a couple directors that see it that way, and maybe the connotations of what that says about my fellow human beings is my low point. I just had a revelation here. Is the zombie zombie genre the genre fiction equivalent of NASCAR? I think it might be. You're in it for the crashes? Yes, exactly. In it for the crashes and the zombie dicks. <laughs> so let's turn this thing around a little bit and say, you know what? We've all said at some point that there is something good to be found in this, that we can, like the survivors in the post-apocalyptic wasteland, we can actually find some things that are useful here. What is the high point of zombie fiction? Ian, where are zombies at their best? Okay, First of all, digression, I will say that if you actually watch Warm Bodies, it is a much better movie than it is an advertising campaign. There are some generally horrific elements to the story which are completely deleted from the advertising to make it, as someone said, a Twilight movie. <laughs> okay? Hmm. Now, as to the high points, I'm also going to go with two, because obviously if you don't like zombies, you go with two low points. If you like zombies, you go with two high points. They both come from The Walking Dead. Now, I should say that The Walking Dead is obviously flawed, and I could find a bunch of other stuff, but there are two moments in The Walking Dead which I think to speak to of what we've been talking about today. First is from the very first episode, and it involves a, a young girl who is intended to a zombie who is still clutching her doll, which brings out just the idea that they are still in there somewhere. That if you are smashing in the skull of a zombie, in this case, you are smashing in the head of a sick little girl. And the real horror is that if you don't do that, she will kill you, you will get up, and you will be in the same state, and you will do the same thing to other people. And that gets back to the idea of distancing and othering. I hate the verbing and the nouning of words. <laughs> but it brings out the point that while there's this huge gap, while we can sort of say that this is justifiable, that you know, they aren't really like us, at a fundamental level, they are. And the other point I'll bring up is from, I believe, the second season of Walking Dead. Now, one of the things I like about The Walking Dead is that at times they do things that virtually no other American television show can do and get away with. I've pointed out that there is a very sympathetic character in The Walking Dead who's ongoing, who is an uneducated, lower working class, dirt poor, white trash southerner. Now, I should mention I come from the equivalent Australian social class. <laughs> <laughs> and proud of it. But there is virtually no other American fiction in which you could portray Merle Dixon in particular as a sympathetic character because he is a horrible human being in many ways. And yet you can still sympathize with him. Which is, of course, exactly the same things I do with the zombies at their best, which is that you look at the other and you see yourself. Now, the other example I'd give of zombie fiction 
and The Walking Dead doing something which virtually no other American television program would dare to do, is that in season two, much of the season deals with looking for one lost girl, and Rick becomes obsessed with finding her, puts the group at risk, and she becomes symbolic of everything that's been lost and and of the search for redemption. And as Rick is out searching for her, he hears a church bell tolling. And there have been references in, in the show already to religion, God, where is God? And Rick goes to the church, and it's the wind. He has been driven to the utmost extreme. He thinks he has received a sign from God that there is still hope, and he is deluding himself. That is another moment of real horror and loss, and that is something that I don't think any other American television program could have done and gotten away with. Yeah, that's that's powerful stuff. Casey? This is maybe the hipster the hipster selection here, but I, I thought John of the Dead was, for me, probably the pinnacle there. And it was only because now that it's been so overdone, I think that taking it into satire and parody was the last logical place you could take it. And not like those epic movie, disaster movie, like that type of parody is the death of cinema to me. It's totally the death of cinema. But I mean, Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright, who are obviously, they're brilliant writers. They know how to take a, a good genre and make a great movie out of it. If you'd seen Spaced, which was their their BBC show that was before them, they're entirely subsumed with references from pop culture movies. And that's sort of the soup in which they swim. But the sort of the gentle fourth wall prodding that they do and to sort of make a, a wink and a nod, keep it funny and keep it keep the grotesque parts in there, but keep it part of the whole and overall make a satisfying movie and not one that I call the George Costanza effect. It's hard for me to watch horror movies because you're so frustrated by the stupidity of the characters where I, I do literally have to stop watching the movie because I'm like, <laughs> God, I hate this. I would you'd stop doing that. And it makes me have to stop. Sound of the Dead was not that way. It totally leveled the playing field and made it enjoyable and then had a pretty standard kind of a zombie ending, but it was an enriching experience, you know, and it was on a huge downer at the end, which most zombie movies are that's actually i'm gonna rebound off of what you just said because i actually have the same answer casey Mm. Shaun of the dead for me not only is this a beautifully crafted movie where you see there are gag jokes that appear in the first half before you even see a single zombie and what i love is every one of those jokes comes back later in a different context and is funny in a different way. Mm. And that's something that Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg also do in Hot Fuzz. These guys Mm -hmm. are meticulous craftsmen when it comes to their movie and their comedy. And the other thing is you mentioned these epic movie, scary movie type parodies where simply, and this is my criticism, again, I'll probably get shit for this, (laughs) of Seth MacFarlane on Family Guy is that Uh. he simply seems to think, like with epic movie, like with scary movie, that pointing out a cultural reference is the same thing as crafting a joke. Oh, thank you for saying that. That pointing out that... Oh, hey, look, here's a cultural reference that I'm going to forget in six months. And I rushed this movie out right away. Those are the worst kinds of parodies. The real kinds of parodies that are really good, whether it's Blazing Saddles, whether it's Airplane, Mm -hmm. and in this case, Shaun of the Dead, come from a place where the original source material is something the creators love. And that's the thing that Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright do, which is they know the tropes of the fiction they're laughing at. But in the case of making fun of the movie, they also make a genuinely good straight zombie movie at the same time. Parts of it are genuinely terrifying. Parts of it are genuinely heart-wrenching. The moment where Simon Pegg has to watch his mother, who's been bitten, turn into a zombie, genuinely brings tears to my eyes. Mm. It is really hard to watch because the emotions, even though we're watching a comedy that laughs at the idea of zombie apocalypse, you still remember that there has to be real emotion grounding this. Mm -hmm. 
And in this comedy movie, they do a better job building characters than a lot of serious zombie movies manage to do, all while doing it as satire. Mm. And that's why I think Shaun of the Dead is, even if you're not a zombie fan, it's the zombie movie you should check out. So, Libby, I know you're going to have a hard time finding anything nice to say about it, which is <laughs> I why I gave, you as, I gave you as much time as possible to think about this. And you didn't run away. I, I know, I didn't run away. Um, I think you'll be surprised. First of all, I have to agree that Shaun of the Dead is an excellent example of writing, whether you're talking about writing books or writing screenplays or writing articles on the internet. It is just well-crafted from top to bottom. It is a very, very good film. Um, so kudos to the writers. Um, and I actually enjoyed Shaun of the Dead. Uh, but for me, the high point is actually Dawn of the Dead, and hmm. that's because I feel that the use of zombies as a metaphor for totally out of control, disgusting consumerism was very <laughs> fresh in that moment, right. and it worked really, really well. And yeah, it kind of hits you over the head, but in a good way. Um, it, it's It works so spectacularly well, and what's so nice about it is that that metaphor has sort of unconsciously tacitly carried over into the current zombie craze where particularly in publishing you'll see anything that has zombies in in any any conceivable way immediately gets picked up and published and foisted upon brick and mortar bookstores all across the globe (laughs) because the consumers will come shambling toward it (laughs) with their arms held out in front of them moaning brains brains and i like the irony I think that's a good place to end. I first want to say thank you to Ian Gold, the owner and proprietor of Ace Comics and Games in Brisbane, Australia. Thank you, Ian, for being a part of this. Thanks for having me. And uh, Libby Grant, also known as Libby Hawker, also known as L.M. Ironside. (laughs) (laughs) Also a columnist for SeattleVine.com. Yeah. And finally, the star screamed to my Megatron, (laughs) Casey Doran. Thank you again. Thanks, Mike. And congratulations on your new spawn. Thanks again. May he not turn into a zombie ever. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, we will see you again in two months. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our audio engineer was Rich Lyons. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Any zombies out there? Don't say that. What? That. What? That. The dead word. Don't say it. Why not? Because it's ridiculous.